All right. Good morning, everybody. Right on. How you doing? Happy Mother's Day. It's good to see you guys. Thanks for being here today. It's part of the story. I'm, uh, I'm Eric. I'm the lead pastor here, as I said before, and I just want to welcome everybody joining us right now at our Timber Grove campus. Y'all say hi to our Timber Grove campus. Hey, we're so glad that you're here today at Timber Grove at 8200 Washington Avenue in the Heights. And also to those of you joining us online, whether it's Facebook, YouTube, or thestory.church, we're really glad that you're a part of our online campus as well. All right. So I hope you all are um, looking forward to a great Mother's Day and uh, that you're, uh, you've got big plans and all that. I promise I'm going to have you out on time today. How's that? Even though this message we're about to have is... It's going to be an adventure, y'all, so strap in. We're about to cover a lot of ground that you probably did not expect to cover on Mother's Day at church. We do this on purpose, where we plan the least conventional messages on the most traditional days, because we like people uh, catching people off guard, and we don't want you to think that uh, church is always the same, and that on uh, sentimental days like Mother's Day that church is overly sentimental or saccharine or whatever. We're really, I, I think we are of the belief that something urgent is happening every time that we gather together. So there are like real life decisions hanging in the balance every time that we gather as the church. And, and so we want to talk about serious things, things that everybody's talking about in everyday life. Today is no different. That's why we're doing this uh, message series called True or False. Uh, we are fact-checking some of the most common, controversial claims that you'll hear in the church. Oftentimes, Christians arguing back and forth, den denominations splitting up over this, and, and uh, you'll also see people out in the world arguing about this, these topics as well. And so, so far, we've had a, a couple of, of great messages um, on a couple of topics. Uh, last week, especially, uh, Dylan Braddock um, and, and Kale over at Timber Grove really brought it um, about, uh, you can love Jesus and hate church. That was an eye-opening message. Today, today, our controversial claim is controversial indeed. So for you, for Mother's Day, we're celebrating by probably talking about the most controversial of claims, and that is that God's preferred pronouns are he, him, his. <laughs> All right? So we're talking about gender, gender identity, gender ideology, pronouns, preferred pronouns, and of course, God and the Bible today. And uh, the best part about this series is that everybody gets to vote. So every week we're having a congregational vote. And let's see the survey results from this week's claim. Okay, so what I want you to notice here is the dramatic sort of polarization of this survey. The last two or three Sundays that we've done this series, most people have voted in the mostly com uh, columns. Mostly true or mostly false? This week, like 73% of you voted absolutely one way or the other, which made me even more nervous than I usually am because I'm like, no matter what I say, I'm going to really alienate a large portion of my congregation today. So um, by the end of this message, I'll get around to what I believe is uh, the, the biblical response to this, uh, to this controversial claim 45% of you said true. Another like 16 or 70% of you said mostly true. So this congregation seems to be leaning in the true direction, and, uh, but there were still some obviously some very, really committed people to, to false. Mostly false came in last, but absolutely false was second, as you saw in those results. Now, so we have to talk about what, what issue we're naming here. When we talk about gender and preferred pronouns, obviously we've got, we've got a lot going on in our culture. And what comes to mind for most of us are the myriad controversies that are in our faces 
all the time when it comes to gender and pronouns, etc. So in recent years, we've seen people going to war with each other over issues ranging from who can use which public restroom to who can compete in which women's collegiate sport. And we've seen these images on the news, this 6'4 swimmer dominating um, the women's uh, sport of swimming in uh, collegiate sports. And it's raised a lot of questions and controversy. While she was being questioned on the Senate floor in her confirmation hearings uh, to become the first African-American woman to ever serve on the United States Supreme Court, absolutely historic moment in our nation's history, um, Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson was asked a, a question that used to be a simple one, but no longer is. The question was, uh, can you define the word woman? Now, clearly, it was something of a gotcha question, right? Because of the cultural moment that we're in, everyone would hesitate to give a definitive answer to that question because no matter what you say, half the country's going to want to crucify you, <laughs> kind of like how I feel up here <laughs> today to a lesser extent. And so in Justice Brown-Jackson's defense, um, no one would want to face the, the music in this cultural climate that we're living in by offering a clear answer one way or the other. But I just want... You didn't know her answer was, no, I can't define the word woman. I'm not a biologist. And I, I want us to just acknowledge, politics and everything aside, what a new phenomenon this is for people. It wasn't long ago that you didn't have to be a PhD in biology to know what made a woman a woman. And we're just in a new moment, culturally speaking. I'm not here to like, dismiss the moment that we're, I'm just naming the moment that we're in. Like until like five minutes ago, everyone just assumed that what made a woman a woman had to do with biology and anatomy and chromosomes and, and hormones. And uh, I, mean, I mean, we all have different, you know, uh, anatomy and, and reproductive systems and all that. And, and those are the kinds of things you could point to, to say what made a woman a woman. Or you could even say, the biological fact that since the moment she was conceived in her mother's womb, every single cell in her body has borne the genetic coding that make a woman a woman, that identified her as female from the moment of conception. And the same is true for males. But now we're living in this weird time, right? We're just in a weird time where everything's moving so quickly. And some of you have jobs and lives you don't even know what I'm talking about right now. You're like, look, look, see, the devil's here and he's, he's working on us, throwing my Bible on the floor. Come on. Not today, Satan. Okay, it's Mother's Day. So anyway, uh, where was I? Most of you are like busy and, and probably distracted with real life and you don't even know how quickly things are progressing. So let me just offer some examples of what I mean. It wasn't long ago that... Uh, you could say things without getting um, just torn apart. Things like gender is binary, or there's only two genders, or women have certain anatomy and men have certain, and that's what makes us us and all of that. But now we're living this time which it's gospel truth in many, many circles that gender is uh, actually distinct from and different from biological sex. 
And I want us to acknowledge how new that is, too, because up until very recently, sex and gender were basically synonyms, except for 1% of the population I'm going to talk about in a minute. But now they're distinct in many circles, especially sort of elite intellectual circles. Those two things are different concepts. And obviously not everyone in our culture is on board with this. That's why we're having a war over this kind of topic. But I want you to know if you're not a Christian and you think you've kind of got Christians pegged as the, as the sort of, uh, you know, the folks that are against the way the world is moving. Many Christians are, but it's not just Christians. Many people in the scientific community, many uh, high-level biologists and gender experts have, albeit quietly, pushed back against the notion that sex and gender are two different things and gender is just a social construct or whatever. Many have, but they're, they're afraid at the same time, so they don't really go public. They'll just quietly publish papers or little books here and there saying, hey, we should be careful to not divorce gender from sex altogether, lest we lose something important. For example, in her book, The End of Gender, uh, a secular neuroscientist, Dr. Deborah So, uh, wrote this about what's happening today. She said, in today's climate, gender has been branded as an ephemeral, intangible thing, something that can't be described or explained beyond one's personal experiences and self-identification. But denying biology will not help us live more productive, meaningful lives. Instead, hiding biological facts only sends us back to the dark ages to stumble around, discovering what we already know. Scientifically speaking, sex and gender can only be understood as binary. And in the same book, she talks about how you can't scientifically say there are more than two genders or that these things are, um, you know, fluid for, you know, most of us or even more than like 1% of us. That's what the science says. But I know we're living in this time where experience matters, feelings matter more than perhaps they have in the past relative to facts and science, and that's okay. We're just naming what's real right now. Now, it's worth mentioning that this movement I'm describing today began with the best of intentions, like many movements do. Before it went off the rails, it was actually well-intentioned, well-meaning. So it began with feminist leaders and other kind of cultural thought leaders um, recognizing a flaw in our society and even in our gender construct because what we had was an inequitable system where men held a, a inordinate amount of the power in society, right? So women were not given the same rights and didn't have the right to vote or the right to work, the right to be educated and all that. And, and so we also had this subset in our, in our culture that people were starting to uh, acknowledge, which were called intersex people, that one or so percent of every population that is born um, just made different. They're born without um, the, the sort of anatomy that would be clearly identifiable. They are, as doctors say, anatomically ambiguous. Okay, so about one percent of the population, about one in every 100 babies is born this way. And the original gender warriors had the right idea. They were right to fight for the rights of women and for the recognition of intersex people and, and to fight for their rights as well. But as the movement expanded, its mission did too. And with the expansion of the mission came activism. And by the mid-20th century, these leaders were making broader claims. Instead of women should be equal to men, they were making broader claims like gender is a social construct. It is a performance and nothing more. 
and other claims like the existence of intersex people proves that gender is non-binary, that there could be infinite numbers of genders because this 1% proves that, which again is scientifically questionable at best. Now prior to this movement, sex and gender were almost always synonyms. But by the late 20th century, college students across America, I went to college in 97, the fall of 97, College students across America at that time especially were learning that while sex is biological and fixed, male, female, gender is something else, and it can be fluid, and it is socially constructed. And then it has moved even further today. If you've got a kid that's in high school or about to go to college, um, you need to know that schools and universities and even worldwide governments have been affirming this idea that not only does a person's biological sex in other words, the sex they're assigned at birth, not only does that not determine their gender, but their gender identity can reverse engineer their biological sex. So this is where we're at now. And, and, and it's, if you think I'm exaggerating, let me just read you an excerpt of one of the laws passed by a major world government. This is one of many. This is just the easiest one to read. It's in English or whatever. So this is from the Irish government that passed a law called the Gender Recognition Act. This is section 18.1 that says, and listen close, it says, where a gender recognition certificate is issued to a person, so someone that, is, that has transitioned in some, with or without surgery, right? So you just transition your identity. That person's gender shall become, for all purposes, the preferred gender, so that if the preferred gender is male, listen to this, if the preferred gender is male, that person's sex becomes that of a man. Y'all see that? Like, it's just words, I know, but these are important words. So we're saying now that gender can change your bio biological sex. How? With surgery? Not necessarily. It's just magic. It's faith-based. It's to suggest that transubstantiation is possible, which I thought Christians had cornered the market on. But apparently, there's now a faith-based reality in the world that says you can believe your way into a whole new bi biological makeup. All right, so this is, this is interesting, to say the least. And now these days to suggest that what makes a woman a woman is biology or anatomy or chromosomes or reproductive system, that will get you in some real trouble. In fact, I have no idea if we're still live on Facebook right now <laughs> or not or YouTube or whatever. Hopefully, if I just, if I shut off, uh, you know, if you're watching online, go to the story.church and we'll, uh, we'll have you there. Okay, so <laughs> I don't know if they're coming for us or not, but politicians uh, that have been running for office have been thrown off of platforms for saying things like men can't get pregnant because to say in this day and age that men can't get pregnant is to dismiss the lived experience of biological females who now identify as men but still get pregnant and um, it's, to, it's to deny their existence and uh, it's hate speech legally in many instances. And if you don't believe me because you're one of those people with a job and a life, I present to you Apple's newest emoji straight from your iPhone and mine. This is true. You can type pregnant in your little chat window in your messages app, and you will be presented with options. This sort of semi-androgynous looking person who's pregnant, and this guy over here who's also pregnant, who looks like he's had a lot of beer or something. 
So this is a pregnant man, and this is, our, this is where we are as a culture, all right? And obviously, there are implications to this that are interesting and or dangerous, uh, and in particularly, they are dangerous for women, ironically enough, as the word woman um, is being slowly canceled from our lexicon. Um, I think we should be careful and pay attention. Now, we could spend all day sort of critiquing culture, right? We could spend all day being the kind of get-off-my-lawn, crotchety Christians that just get angry and frustrated and can't wait to get back to church so we are with our people again and we clutch our pearls and we talk about how fallen this once great culture really is and thank God we're not like them. And soon enough, we're the Pharisee in Jesus' parable who said, Lord, thank you, you didn't make me like them. And Jesus warned us not to be that. So what are we here to do? Who are we here to be? Well, I hope one of the reasons that we're here is instead of just critiquing culture, looking down our noses from a distance, I hope that we're here to pursue some deeper truth. In particular, I hope that we're here to weigh biblical truth on a subject like this one against what's happening in the culture. So I want to do that today, and I want to start by looking at the very first book of the Bible, the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, and to get a glimpse of the foundation the Bible lays where gender and uh, being human are concerned, all right? So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 is where we'll begin. Uh, you have a Bible in front of you, and um, y'all do over there at Timber Grove, I believe, as well. And, and if you don't, just read along with me on the screen. This is uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule, dot, dot, dot. And then verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All right. So this is uh, sort of the foundation for the biblical view of gender as we understand it. So um, the, the idea here being gender is a gift from God. The two genders that we know as male and female are both gifts from God given at the same time and for the same reason and in the same image. In God's image, male and female, he created them. And so both male and female equally created in God's image. However, you probably also noticed and maybe you were confused by the fact that he created male and female in his image, but every pronoun for God in this, in this passage was what? Male. And if you're astute with your Bible, you probably know that that's the truth from cover to cover. The Bible uses exclusively male pronouns for God. Now, there are a few instances that are worth mentioning on Mother's Day, especially when the Bible says, well, God is also like a mother. God loves like a mother. God protects God's little ones, God's young like a mother bear, defends her cubs. Or Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I have wanted to, to protect you under my wings, to gather you under my wings like a mother hen. And in every one of those instances, you see the word like. So God is like a mother. God loves you like a mother does, a good mother does. God gathers you under God's wings like a mother does. But never does the Bible use feminine pronouns for God. Or does the Bible explicitly say that God is a mother, like Mother Earth or whatever? What are we to make of this? You know, I think 
One of the reasons why the, the winning answer in the survey was uh, totally true is because many of you were just not in a mood to contradict what you've seen in the Bible. The Bible says he, him, his, and only those pronouns for God. So who am I to contradict that? And I'll be honest, that's where I started many, many, many hours ago when I started researching this message. I started out, yep, that's going to be the answer, and it's going to make a lot of people on the other end really angry, right? Well, the more I dug, the less comfortable I was with that being the absolute answer, that totally true answer, the more I realize there's some nuance here because, I mean, how can we box God into one gender? If in this passage God said uh, that he made us male and female in God's own image, so God must be bigger than what we conceive of gender, right? That must be the case that God is beyond gender in some way or another. Still, the fact that the Bible is only apparently comfortable referring to God as he, him, his, whatever, should not be lost on us. And we talk about God as three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. At least two out of three of those are explicitly male, right? So I guess maybe it's mostly true. That's where I landed about a week ago, mostly true. That's the answer. That's nice and safe. That feels a little safer than totally true. Then I kept studying I kept going, kept thinking about Scripture and about the gender identity movement and this new lexicon we have now, and I landed on an answer that might, I don't know, surprise a lot of you, but I landed on totally false for this, uh, for this statement, but not probably not for reasons you may be thinking. I landed on totally false because, in part, in Scripture, gender is God's gift to us, and it is immutable. And therefore, the phrase preferred pronouns is uh, oxymoron. It doesn't exist, biblically speaking. Just like it is brand new to the English lexicon, preferred pronouns doesn't compute biblically, um, which isn't meant to, to diminish the many struggles of people who struggle with gender dysphoria or people that are intersex. And, and you know, it's not meant to diminish your experience. But in the Bible, it seems like pronouns are just pronouns. They are just the fixed result of God's good gift of gender. And so we should be careful to suggest that an immutable gift of God is in fact uh, so fluid as to be changed on the daily, depending on how we feel. We should just be very careful about that. And instead, what I wanna do is move us back to the firm foundation of our faith that every single one of us, no matter how we feel any given day, every single one of us is made, fearfully, wonderfully made, in the image of God, who does not change and who does not make mistakes. So we have to find a way of reconciling all these different thoughts about what the Bible says and how people feel or experience life today. How do we do that? In light of everything happening in our culture, how should we live? Well, there's this uh, word from the Apostle Paul to the first Christians who were living in much more turbulent times than ours that I think will give us some really good tips, some advice, practical things to to take home with us today. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is a New Testament book on the other side of your Bible. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 is where uh, we'll start this passage. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Paul wrote, uh, though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone. So I am subservient to everyone. And he's gonna tell us why. 
in just a moment. I am subservient to everyone to win as many as possible. There's the one. To win as many as possible for Christ. I make myself a slave to everyone, even people I don't understand or even like or whatever. Like they vote different. They look different. I make myself a slave to them for Christ to win them over. All right, verse 20. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. Verse 21, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. Verse 22, to the weak, that means oppressed, really, that's the closest synonym I can think of for today, like those who are on the underbelly of society, those without the the ones who, who struggle. To the weak, I became weak. I struggled with them so that uh, I might win the weak for Christ. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some for Christ. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in God's blessings, in its blessings. All right, so I see a few things here that we can pick up on that I think should help us be a more relevant active, hospitable congregation in the 21st century world that we're living in. So I want to take us quickly through a few things, all of which, by the way, are, uh, as, as you will see here, all of which are based on this singular mission that I see Paul referring to. We're all here to make disciples of Jesus Christ in the whole world, not just to, to be safe together in a building, That's never what church was supposed to be. We learned this last week. The church is a movement, a gathering of people around Christ. And our singular mission is to make disciples, even to make disciples among the people we see on the news or social media with whom we disagree on everything. And so that's the mission. And everything I'm going to share with you now is based on that mission. And it's from, I think, straight from Paul. First, I think Christians in this world, in this context, can learn to acknowledge without acquiescing. Acknowledge without acquiescing. What I mean here is that we can acknowledge the problems, we can acknowledge what's going on in the world without acquiescing to the demands that the gender identity movement might place on us that we may not disagree, we may not agree with. Okay? Somebody demands that you use, you know, their preferred pronouns. Don't you don't have to be a jerk about it. Learn their name. And meet them eye to eye, where they're at. Use their name if you have to. You know, just find a way to get through on a human level instead of just making a point and winning an argument while you lose something for the kingdom of God. That's what it means to acknowledge without um, acquiescing. You know, people who are questioning their gender identity really exist, and they are exploding in number with every passing generation. What I'm about to show you, you're not going to believe The great majority of um, uh, millennials and Gen Z uh, believe that there are more than two genders, first of all. And as you see on the statistics here, according to Barna's most recent data, 30% of millennials, 26 to 40 years of age, millennials are 40 now. You're old, millennials. So 30% of millennials identify somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum, uh, as do almost 40% of Gen Z. 18 to 25%, 30% of young Christians, 20 to 25, identify somewhere on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. And I will tell you that um, 
a large number of these people in these statistics are, are not identifying as gay or lesbian or same-sex attracted or whatever. This, a lot of this has to do with gender identity and not feeling at home in your own skin, not feeling at home, not feeling like you are what you see in the mirror when you look at yourself, okay? And there's no reason to believe that this trend is not going to continue, right? Why would we think it's just wishful thinking? Hope is not a strategy, as they say. Like These trends are going to continue, and the church had best be ready to talk to people and meet them where they are. So how do we respond? I think anytime we're responding to something we perceive as sin or sin adjacent in the world, we better be ready to begin with repentance for our own sin first. And I think there's plenty to repent of as far as the church is concerned and as far as us individually and how we've been dismissive or we've ignored people that are really struggling in, in our midst. And one of the ways I have seen the church being complicit in my time as a pastor is by promoting this vision of masculinity that looks a lot more like Clint Eastwood than it does Jesus Christ. Rough and tumble with a Marlboro in his mouth. That's what a real man looks like, right? Or I've seen, uh, I've seen the church also too often promoting a vision of of womanhood or a vision of femininity that reduces a girl's value down to her physical appearance or her uh, chastity, let's say. We've sent the message to young people for generations that to be a real man is uh, to be ruggedly macho and to be a real woman is to be irresistibly adorable. So what happens when the young people that we raise do not attain those high standards of masculinity and femininity? Well, in past generations, what happened was you just, you just kind of sucked it up and dealt with the fact that you were less than others. But these generations now have choices, real choices. For the first time, they have choices to take alternative routes that do not lead to further alienation. In fact, in many circles, they lead to the most... Uh, sort of applause and affirmation that many young people have ever experienced. When they, when they make these choices and come out in these ways, they're often welcomed into real community and they have some sense of identity, right? We shouldn't be surprised when 40% of young men we're raising in the church look in the mirror and see something less than a man. 40% of young women look in the mirror and see something less than a real woman. And... We should be ready, I think, to say something other than what we have said in the past. Bless you. Bless you. All right. So, bless you. It's adorable. Okay, so uh, what I want to do is look at a story that illustrates this very well. We don't have to go far in the Bible to see exactly what I'm talking about here. This is biblical. All right? So Genesis 25, verses 27 to 28 talks about the story of Jacob and Esau, all right? So it says about these boys, they grew up, they were twins, but the, I'm going to give that poor child and his mother just a minute. Okay, so <laughs> I am so sorry. So <laughs> Jacob and Esau were twins. I can baptize that baby and take that right out of him, but I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Joking. I've already baptized that baby. I know who that baby is. All right. <laughs> what is happening right now? All right. 
<laughs> They're conspiring against me. The young generation. All right, Genesis 25, 27 to 28. This is the story of Jacob and Esau, okay? The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Do you see the difference? Who's the manly man? Esau. He's it's intentionally written that way. He's the hunter. He's big and hairy. He's strong. He goes out to hunt meat, bring home the bacon or whatever the bacon equivalent was for Hebrew people. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then Jacob was content to stay home among the tents with the women, cooking and cleaning. Isaac, their father, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah, the mama, loved Jacob. Jacob was a mama's boy who stayed home with mama while the men went out hunting. And you get the idea. And so which one of these men were more masculine? The answer is Esau. Which one of them was more of a man? That's not clear at all. In fact, it's, it's entirely conceivable, it's actually absolutely true to say, that Jacob, although he was less masculine, was no less of a man than his brother Esau, at least not in God's eyes, because when the time came for God to choose which of them would carry the heavy burden of becoming Israel and being the forefather of the 12 tribes, God chose not to lay that heavy burden on the broad, strong, hairy shoulders of Esau, but instead on the puny, weak, skinny shoulders of Jacob. Because in God's eyes, personality traits like a masculinity quotient or a femininity quotient have very little to do with what kind of a man or a woman you are. And we've mixed all that up and sent messages to our young people that's gotten them twisted in all kinds of ways, and I think we should be willing to acknowledge that. First, And then once we do acknowledge that, I think we can move on to this second idea. I'm going to move fairly quickly. I'm running out of time. But the second idea is that we can empathize without enabling. So we don't have to perpetuate sins or, or, or act like everything's fine when it's not. But we should do everything that we can to empathize with people who are struggling. Even if you have never looked in the mirror and wondered if who you really are matches who you are on the outside. If you've never had that struggle where you feel like you're not at home in your own flesh and blood, I think it's incumbent upon us to do the spiritual work here to at least imagine what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. Because the last thing this world needs right now is for Christians to just get tired of talking about this stuff, for Christians to wish we would talk about more pleasant subjects at church. I go to church to get away from this stuff, Pastor Eric, especially on Mother's Day. I'm so unsettled. That's my, that's my worst fear, that y'all are going to go home today thinking that. Because the, the last thing the church need is, uh, that the world needs is for the church to further isolate ourselves in this time and place. Now more than ever, it's time for us to be winsome again and contagious and to inspire people to follow Jesus again. In order for that to happen, we better come up with something better to say to people who are struggling with gender dysphoria or gender issues than, you know, I disagree with your lifestyle and I think you're kind of wrong and kind of gross and you should probably get some therapy and maybe go to church. It's not my church because, eesh. but, you know, like that's what they think we're saying. And until we say something else definitively, that's what they're going to think. We better have something better to say than that. 
Empathy means putting yourself in someone else's shoes as much as possible. And in this case, it means doing the, the work to realize that if you were raised like them, if you were rejected like them, if you were wired like them, if you were bullied like them, you could have just as easily ended up in their shoes. But for the grace of God, here go I, right? No. You could have ended up questioning everything about yourself, including your gender. We should never forget Romans 3.23. You should write it on your hand, on your journal, on your wall at home. Keep it close to your heart at all times. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, including us. And Christians, more than anyone else, are called to be empathetic because we're well aware of the length to which God has gone to save us from our sin. And this isn't something new, this idea of empathizing with people who struggle with gender and make decisions about their gender that we might not fully agree with or accept or whatever. Like, this isn't new. I've been saying this literally since the first year at the story when in 2015, world-famous athlete from the Wheaties box, Bruce Jenner, said, call me Caitlin. And I preached a whole sermon about this where I said, if Caitlin showed up this morning, we better be ready. And I posted on Facebook about it. You'll see the date on this post, June 3rd, 2015. Politics and ridiculous media coverage aside, every Christian in America should be waiting with bated breath for Caitlin Jenner to walk into our churches this Sunday. We should give her a coffee and a hug and maybe some bread and some wine or Welch's as it were, because even when you disagree with culture, people knowing Jesus is a higher priority than you winning an argument. It's who we've always been at the story and who we continue to be. And once we've acknowledged without acquiescing and empathized without enabling, we can then do what Jesus did and chase. Chase without chastising. In Luke 15, Jesus told one of his most famous stories about a shepherd who had 100 sheep. And this is what he, what he said. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And then he finds it. Joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. He said, that's how it's gonna be in heaven. And that's not the first time today in this message you've heard that one out of a hundred figure. If you were paying attention earlier, we talked about that portion of our population that truly, awfully struggles with gender identity because they're born different. One in a hundred. And in a symbolic way, I think this really matters a lot or should matter a lot to us because if we see the heart of Jesus on this matter, the heart of God, that even if you're not sure who you are, even if you, you, you question everything about yourself or about how God made you, even if you've wandered or made decisions that run counter to what God originally designed you, even if you're confused and frustrated and you feel alone, Jesus will never stop chasing after you. Never. No matter what. That's who he is. That's who he was with us. That's why most of us are here. And that's who we're called to be with God's sheep as well, especially the, the ones that get lost or off the beaten path. Before closing, I just want to acknowledge everyone who's got some experiences, some lived experience or some feelings or some frustrations. Everyone here, everyone at Timber Grove and everyone online who either identifies somewhere on this spectrum we're talking about today or you love someone who does or you're raising a child who does, I just want you to know, as far as I'm concerned, there will always be a place for you here because God wants you here and I want you here. God loves you 
This church loves you, and there will always be a place for you to come here and get to know Jesus a little bit better here, even if there are disagreements on social issues, and even if I sometimes make jokes to ease the tension, don't hold those against me. It doesn't mean I don't care. Believe me when I tell you I stay up at night thinking about you and mostly you. We are with you and we love you because your story matters, not just to me or to us, but to God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for showing us what the heart of God really looks like. We pray for the courage to live and love accordingly. We pray in your name. Amen.